One of the most interesting books that I've read in a while is one by Amanda Ripley, and it's entitled uh, The Unthinkable, Who Survives a Disaster and Why? Talks about how important thought process is to those who are involved in a disaster and how it is as much an indicator of survival as sometimes the disaster itself. That sometimes in the midst of an accident or tragedy, a person is able to think more clearly. They become more alert, especially if they've had prior experience or training or education. But then there are others who just seem to shut down. It seems like they stop thinking altogether, and that drastically affects their survival rate. When I was reading her book, I couldn't help but remember a particular incident that happened in my life several years ago. I had just dropped off my brother and his friend at Whitewater Bay, and I turned to head west on Reno. Now there, between east and westbound Reno, there's this huge trench. And I was watching the car in front of me kind of meander in their lane when suddenly they swerved and headed down into the ditch. Well, I pulled over immediately, as did several other cars. But what I noticed is that nobody was doing anything. They just stood there. I was only 19 or 20 at the time, but I knew something had to be done. I ran to the driver's side door of the wrecked car, and there was a woman there who was trying to get out. I could tell that she had hit her head on the dashboard. Her forehead was covered with blood, and and there was glass through her hair because the windshield had shattered, and I was trying to calm her, but then I asked for one of the others to run and call for an ambulance and the police. I asked one of the other adults to run to my car and get a towel out of the back seat. And I asked someone else to try to find some water. Now, it wasn't that I was the most experienced person there, and I surely wasn't the smartest person, but I had had some basic first aid throughout my life in Girl Scouts, in 4-H, in school, and in my part-time job. Now, I am just talking the most basic of first aid elements, um, how to call for help, how to calm a person down. And, and yet I remembered those things because we had practiced them over and over again through my life. And so I knew some of the basics of what to do, and I could stay there with the woman until help arrived. I remember that when reading Amanda Ripley's book, and she talked about how some people will be able to recall education and training, and some people stop thinking. She talked about the idea that in some airplane crashes, that even though people had just heard the safety procedures demonstrated to them and read to them uh, a few minutes earlier, After a crash, some people stop thinking and they just sit in their seats unable to do anything. They don't know what to do. And so they remain in their seats. They survive the crash, but they would lose their lives from secondary causes because they didn't act or didn't think of what to do. She told the story of the Beverly Hills Supper Club fire. The Beverly Hills Supper Club was an entertainment venue just south of Cincinnati, and it was a large place that had several banquet halls and meeting rooms and a huge concert hall. 
And it was the place in the 70s. People like Frank Sinatra and Ray Charles would play there. It was the place that you wanted to hold your wedding reception or your banquets or your parties. On the night of May 28, 1977, um, in fact, this Saturday will be the 39th anniversary of the event. On May 28, there was a wedding going on. There were three banquet meetings with dinners, and the concert hall was filling up with more than 3,000 people when an electrical fire broke out. And a waitress went to the bride of the reception, and she told her, you have to remove your party and evacuate until we get this fire put out. Well, after the waitress left, the bride stood there kind of uncertain what to do, and she just stood there looking around until she happened to look off to her left, and she saw that the divider wall between her banquet hall and the next was engulfed in flames. And it spurred her into reality. She started yelling at her guests, we need to leave now, move out to the garden. She was one of the last to leave, making sure that everybody got out safely when the room kind of erupted in flames. The back of her wedding dress was scorched. She and her new husband would, par- would be part of a human chain pulling people out of other parts of the building to safety. That night, there was a busboy working by the name of Walter Bailey. He was just 18 years old, and he was leaving the concert area and moving to the dining room to help out there when a waitress passed him by and said, there's a fire in the zebra room. And she was running to find a manager because she didn't know what to do about it. Well, he didn't really believe her. He went to the zebra room. The door was closed, but he started seeing puffs of smoke coming from beneath the door. And he remembered back to his high school science class. He loved science, and he knew that pressure must be building. So he left the door closed, and he went to the room right next door. There was a small group of people there. He didn't ask for any permission, but he told them, I need you to evacuate now. And they listened. They went out to the garden area. Then he moved to the concert hall and was filling up with people. They were expecting more than 3,000. He saw his supervisor and he went up to his supervisor and he said, we need to evacuate this place. There's a fire. And his supervisor didn't do anything. He was motionless. He, He couldn't figure out what should happen. And so he just stood there. Well, Walter was extremely frustrated He went out to the line of people who were still trying to make their way in, and he said in a loud voice, I need you all to follow me. And he led them out to the garden, and he told them to wait there until he had returned. By the time that he got back to the concert hall, he found that nothing had changed. And so he knew that he'd probably lose his job, but he made his way up to the front, to the stage. He climbed up the stairs, and he asked one of the comedians for the microphone. They were part of the opening act. And he spoke to the crowd of people that were gathering. He said, on my right is a door. There is an exit door in the right-hand corner of the room. I want you to look at it. And now I want you to look at my left-hand side. There's a exit door in the left-hand corner of this room. And now I want you to turn and look at the back because there's an exit door in the back. And now I want you to evacuate calmly because there is a fire in the front part of this building. Now because of him, 
Most of the people were able to get out safely. They listened to his directions. He knew what to tell them, and they made it out safely. It could have been a terrible disaster. As it was, 167 people lost their lives that night. But if you consider that there were well over 3,000 people there in a building that had no smoke alarms, no sprinkler system, and the management really was unclear how to evacuate it, it's amazing that the death toll was that small. But even though he had given such clear, concise directions, there were some people who just couldn't process it. They stopped thinking. The next day when the firefighters came back to assess the damage, they came across a table that was in the concert hall area, and it was a table of six people still sitting upright in their chairs. They had never made any attempt to move. Their lack of thinking, their inability to think cost them their lives, and yet the wisdom of a teenager saved so many more. This morning, we're continuing on in our sermon series, Snapshots. We're looking at those brief moments of time, snapshots, that capture a value being lived out. We talked last week that we judge others by their actions, and we judge ourselves by our intentions. But the truth is that all of our good intentions really ought to translate to action as often as possible. We don't want to just have good intentions about values. We want to be living them. And so we're looking at Scripture all through this series. We're looking at brief Scriptures, just a few words that capture in a moment a value being lived out that we believe is one that God would have us embody in life. This morning's Scripture comes from the story of Solomon. Solomon was the son of King David, and he became king himself upon David's death. And he goes to the place of worship, and he stands before the altar making sacrifices to God in prayer, and God appears to Solomon. And he tells Solomon, whatever you pray for, whatever you ask will be granted unto you. Now imagine that. Anything he could ask for, God is going to grant him that request. The interesting thing is Solomon already knew what he was going to ask for. He had come to the place of worship to ask God in prayer, to be before God. You see, he had been thinking about his new role and the enormity of being king. How was he ever going to rule all the people? And so he had come there that night to pray before God and ask for wisdom And when he asked for wisdom, God was blessed. And God said, wisdom and knowledge are granted unto you. And because of Solomon's request, not only was his life blessed, but all of the kingdom of Israel. God was blessed because Solomon chose to ask for wisdom because God knew that that wasn't just about Solomon. It would be a blessing to the entire kingdom. We can go to God and ask for wisdom. We can ask for discernment and knowledge. And these days we need that to help us be more compassionate to one another, to be more understanding of God and the world around us. 
And I think there are two things that we can discuss this morning that can help us. The first is that we need to seek knowledge. You know, when I was discussing this sermon series, Dr. Long and I were preparing it, and we had no trouble talking about being pictures of kindness or being pictures of gratitude or pictures of compassion. But we both felt a little funny saying that we wanted to be pictures of wisdom. It seemed a little pretentious. It felt a little funny saying that. And yet, that's exactly what we need in life. We need wisdom to help us make the right decisions in life. And others need us to make wise choices. Others are counting on us. This past week, I was able to go to Portland, Oregon for a few days to attend General Conference. And I was blessed while there to see Karen Nicholas and Reverend Brian Bakeman and Dr. Long all serving the global church and representing St. Luke's. Now, while I was there, not all of General Conference is inspirational. But one of the times that was, was the story from a young girl from Indiana. Hannah Faust is 14 years old, and she is part of the Carmel United Methodist Church in Carmel, Indiana. And she talked about something that happened in her life just a couple years ago. She was watching a videotape on Burkina Faso. It's a country in West Africa, just north of Ghana. And at the time, it was rated as the third most miserable place in the world to live. It was one of the poorest countries in the world and one of the most poorly educated countries. Three out of five children would die before their fifth birthday because of diseases that were being spread through contaminated water wells, inability to access health care, It was just a terrible situation, and and she watched this video, and although she was a young girl herself, she saw these these little children drinking this dirty water and, and having trouble with hunger and inability to go to school, and suddenly she felt like their big sister. So she went home that night, and she prayed. She prayed, and she prayed, asking God what she could do to make a difference for the people there. And God helped her to uh, study and research Burkina Faso. She started learning everything she could about the country. And what she found out, they had so many problems. There were so many things that she could not make a difference. But she didn't let that stop her. She focused in on providing clean water. That was something that she could do. And so she committed herself to raising funds to put in one water well. She started raking leaves and then shoveling snow and speaking to groups all over. And she raised enough money to build a water well in that country. Now, in addition to building these water wells, she also had a commitment that she wanted to educate people on what life was like in Burkina Faso and And so in the past two years, she has spoken to thousands of people all across the United States to tell them about what's going on. And because of that, she has now raised enough money to build 16 water wells, which are providing clean, fresh water for over 16,000 people there. One young girl who sought knowledge from God 
And God led her in such a way to be a voice that educates thousands of people and is providing water to the people of that country. We need to seek knowledge. We need to pray for wisdom. And it's something that God is blessed by when we pray for that. God wants us to have a better insight as to ways that we can make a difference in the world. God wants us to hunger to have knowledge and education. Another book by Amanda Ripley is called The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way. I've loved reading it. It's very insightful. She's looked at research and education projects from all over the world that compare and take into consideration uh, race, gender, socioeconomic status, parental involvement, as well as a country's education budget. And there's a lot of things that were surprising. But one of the things I loved about the book is that she wanted to go beyond the research that she cites She also wanted to get firsthand accounts, and so she followed several exchange students, both from and to the United States, to get their experience on differences between schools here and in other places of the world. One of the students that is uh, one of the references for her book is a young lady by the name of Kim, who's from Salisaw, Oklahoma. Now, all growing up, Kim stood out as a very bright young person. She was one of these children who was always hungry to learn more. She was always curious, asking questions, wanting to talk about her classes. She loved school. And that was the way her life went up until high school. Now, she was still hungry to learn, but she discovered that most of her friends weren't. She wanted to talk in depth about her classes and and what they were learning and They were glad just to get through them. She was really frustrated. She felt all alone, and and she still had this desire to learn more. And so her older sister encouraged her to look into an exchange student program. Now, her mother really wasn't very excited about her baby daughter going somewhere else and living somewhere in the world, but she made a deal with her. She could go to Finland if she raised the money herself. And I think Kim raised the money far faster than her mom thought possible. Well, she went to Finland and discovered that the weather is far different there than in Salisaw, Oklahoma. It would be frigid cold walking to and from the school. The sun wouldn't come up at all until well into her school day. But she did notice that the school there and the school back in Salisaw had a lot of similarities in appearance and issues. She also noticed that the same student groups that were there in Finland were the same ones that she had back home, all the different cliques in high school. But the big difference she noticed was that all of the students there took school seriously. They took their classes and their homework seriously. They were passionate about it, all of them. And she couldn't understand that. She'd never seen that before. And so she was rather shy, but finally she had summoned up the courage and enough of the Finnish language to finally ask another girl in her class, why do you all care so much? The girl didn't understand her, and so Kim explained, why do you all care so much about school? And the girl still had a puzzled look on her face, and finally she said, because it's education. Well, it took Kim a long time to really comprehend what that meant. For the students in Finland, education was life. 
It was necessary for them before they could get into a college, which was necessary for them to get a career. And so education was taken seriously. It was necessary for their life. They had a hunger for learning. I think along the way, those of us who have been through school, there were times, if we're looking back, that we were really engaged in our classes and maybe sometimes not as much. Maybe there were some times that we really loved school and other times maybe not. But we all had a goal to get to graduation. And what happened then? We closed the book, literally and figuratively. We were done. And yet we were never meant to stop learning. Education is just as vital to us now. We were created for a hunger to learn. And so it's important that we grow in our faith, that we take time in devotion to read our Bibles, to pray to God for understanding, to branch out and move beyond our little comfortable world where we know everything and challenge ourselves to experience new people and cultures, to read books. It's important that we grow in our faith, in our understanding of God and the world around us, we were meant to have a hunger for learning. And second, we need to apply that knowledge. We need to use it. Lydia Patterson was a devout churchwoman in the late 1800s and in the turn of the next century. She was part of the Trinity Methodist Church in El Paso, Texas, and she was committed to education. She was also drawn to serve the Mexican families who were emigrating across the border and especially drawn to their children because they weren't being allowed into the public schools. And so she would take them into her home and she would teach them the Bible and English. Together with another couple in her community, they worked at a private school. It was called the School for Mexican Girls, and it was in the basement of one of the other churches in town. But the three of them dreamt of something bigger. They wanted a school that had a comprehensive educational plan for boys and girls. And so she kept dreaming and talking about this. But unfortunately, she passed away before her dream was realized. Her husband donated all the money in honor of his wife and her passion for children and their education. He donated the money and the Lydia Patterson Institute was built. For more than 100 years, it's been going strong, educating students and lifting them up in their faith and into a better life. They have over 400 students now in grades 7 through 12, and they are doing incredible things. But Lydia Patterson started off, and she wouldn't let her own education go to waste. She put it to use, educating others. And Lydia Patterson Institute continues that tradition. They take the students there and immerse them in English classes so that they're constantly having to apply what they're learning. They also encourage them to take internships all across the country so that not only can they apply their knowledge, but also they can gain a new perspective. It's working well for them. The Lydia Patterson Institute has 95% of their graduates that go on to college. Incredible statistic. We need to use the wisdom and knowledge 
that God gives to us. We need to put it into action because when we pray for wisdom, it's never just for our sake. It's for others. When Solomon prayed for wisdom, it wasn't just for his well-being. It was meant to bless his kingdom, and it did. It's why God was so blessed to hear him ask for it. When we ask for wisdom, it's never just about us. It's meant to be put to use to bless the world around us. In her book, Unthinkable, Amanda Ripley talks about the problems of evacuation procedures in 9-11. It seems that they had trouble getting everyone out in different circumstances, even though they had gone through the 1993 truck bombing. After that, the Port Authority put in $100 million of security measures all around the building to help prevent that sort of thing from happening again, but they did not pay attention to one of the things that's most critical in a disaster situation, and that's the ability for those involved to be able to think critically for themselves about what to do. And so they didn't change their evacuation or fire drills. In fact, every tenant of the two towers had a voluntary fire marshal, And twice a year, they would have a drill. And it mainly consisted of the fire marshal, the volunteer fire marshal, gathering everybody up in the center of the office. They never left the floor. And they talked about what they would do if there was a real emergency, and then they'd go back to work. Well, after 9-11, they did a survey of all of these volunteer fire marshals, and they found that 94% of them had never left the building or evacuated during a drill. And 50% of them did not know the way to evacuate. They didn't know where the stairwells were located. These were the people that were supposed to make sure everybody in the office got out safely, and they didn't know the ways themselves. Well, that wasn't the case with Rick Rescorla. Rick was a vice president of security at Morgan Stanley on 9-11. He was born in Cornwall, England on May 27th. In fact, this coming Friday, he would have been 77 years old if he had survived that day. Well, he was a man who was passionate about education. He was in the British military, And then when the Vietnam War broke out, he moved to the States to join the services here, and he served over in Vietnam. After that, he came back to the States, and he moved to Oklahoma. And he got a degree attending the University of Oklahoma. He got his bachelor's degree and then a master's degree in English. And then while he was working, he went to school at night and got his law degree at Oklahoma City University. He moved from here to the University of South Carolina where he taught criminal justice and he wrote a textbook on the subject. He was someone who was fluent in several languages. He studied the arts. He wrote poetry and and plays and literature. And he was committed to learning more and more. In 1985, he took a job at the Trade Center in security. And one of the things he noticed right off the bat was the vulnerability of the building. He noticed that the parking garage was a liability. He called in one of his friends to help study the situation with him, a friend who was an expert in counterterrorism, and they came to the same conclusion that a truck filled with explosives 
could explode in the parking garage. And so Rick went to the Port Authority and told, him, uh, told them of his findings, and, and yet they still had higher security than most of the surrounding buildings, and so they didn't change anything. And then the 1993 truck bombing happened in the parking garage of the Trade Center. Well, they made all these improvements, but they didn't change their evacuation uh, techniques. And Rick saw that that was critical. And so while everybody else would gather up in their same office twice a year, he made all of the employees of Morgan Stanley actually exit their floors from the 74th floor all the way to the 44th floor. They had to practice an evacuation technique going down the stairs two by two to be most efficient, and he would time them each time so that they would get better and better. Now, he wasn't very popular because he did this every three months, and that meant they had to shut down all their terminals, stop their transactions, and everybody had to participate, even the president of the company. If they had visitors there, they had to do it. But over and over again, while he was researching the security and the problems of, of these buildings, he wanted to pass on education to all of the employees of the company where he worked so that they would know what to do if they ever needed that knowledge. On the morning of September 11th, he went to work early and he was about his responsibilities when at 8.46 a.m., a plane struck Tower 1. And from his office in Tower 2, a voice came over the loudspeaker saying, stay where you are. Do not leave your desks. Do not leave your offices. Because that was the procedure at that time. And he knew without a doubt that it was critical to evacuate his people. And so before that was ever begun, he started in Morgan Stanley Now, they are the largest tenant in all of the Trade Center complex. They had over 2,700 people at work. They had 250 guests that day that were there for a seminar. And he started the evacuation immediately, and people knew what to do because they had done it over and over. He started leading them through the stairwells. During that morning, while people were heading down, he had a chance to call his wife he called her and he said, stop crying. He said, I have to lead these people to safety. He said, if something happens to me, I want you to know that I've never been happier in my life. You have made my life. And then he went back to work with the people there and helping them to escape. Now, as smoke started to fill up the stairwell, people understandably became more nervous and they started becoming scared. And so he sang to the people. He was a big man and he had a barrel of a chest and his voice boomed and people several floors up and down in the stairwell could hear him singing songs from his upbringing in England. They were military songs and he was helping people to march and to fight against death. He would sing to them, Men of Cornwall, stop your dreaming. Can't you see their spear tips gleaming? See their warriors' pennants streaming to this battlefield. Men of Cornwall, stand ye ready. It cannot be ever said, ye for the battle were not ready. Stand and never yield. It was because of his own knowledge 
and there's education that almost all of the Morgan Stanley Corporation were able to escape. They were the largest group. They had over 2,700, but all of the guests and all but 13 of their company made it out safely. And it was because of his commitment to make sure everyone knew what to do. At the very last, he went back upstairs to look for anyone else who needed help. The last time anybody ever saw him, he was about the 10th floor heading back up, and that was shortly before Tower 2 collapsed, and he was never found. But he had committed himself to making sure people knew the right thing to do. We need to be committed to growing in our faith, in our understanding of God and the world around us. And hopefully we would never have to use that in a disaster situation. But you can look at the world around us and you know we need wisdom now. We need discernment now, ways to make a difference in this world. We can't go soft. We can't become complacent. We have to be committed in our prayer life, in our study, in our reading. We have to pray for wisdom now and not give up. It cannot be ever said, ye for the battle were not ready. Stand and never yield. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers.